Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, and I am joined today by Bradley Gerard. Bradley, how are you doing? Very good, thanks, John. Good, good. And Theron Mohammed, how are you, Theron? Good, thanks. Excellent. It's been a while since I've had you in here. Yeah, it has. Yeah, has been enough going on in tech. There has this week, and we're going to talk about it. So we've had ARM Holdings, obviously, being uh, accepting an offer from Japan SoftBank, which is amazing. It's extraordinary, an extraordinary development. We've had the launch of Pokemon Go, which is something that baffles me, as uh, as I've expressed quite loudly in the office, uh, and some results as well on the tech front, which are quite interesting. Bradley, let's start with the news. However, before we get on to technology's big week, what's been going on? I mean, it's another. It's been another exciting week. It's been very bloody hot. It's been very bloody hot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not quite as hot today. On the, on, on the weather front, all those uh, keen weather people out there, it's been really hot in case you haven't noticed. Yeah, I've been suffering. My trains have been suffering. I mean, that's your safe as well, isn't it? It or, is. Uh, I think without, with or without heat, your trains suffer. So. Yeah, not as bad as Southern. True. I don't know what the investment angle on Southern Railway is. is, is well, I mean, there is one because Go Ahead is um, a big uh, owner or has a big stake in the joint venture, which is called Govia. So. Right, because that has been just... A nightmare and a continue a sinkhole apparently opened up as well. Yeah, to, I mean, there's to not make much, matters worse. There's not much they can do about that, I suppose. But, not really. Um, yeah, it's a very interesting one. There's a lot of calls now for um, you know Gopher to be stripped of the mm. um, of the franchise. And uh, the last thing I saw in it was a tweet from Sadiq Khan saying that actually TFL Rail should take it over. I mean, uh, that's unlikely to happen. But yeah, what well, it does, it kind of stretches a little bit beyond London. Really, unless Bright- yeah. Brighton has suddenly become part of London. Well, no, I, I guess it's just a very um, southeast centric franchise. Yeah, yeah. Well, so is mine. Uh, they can take that over too. The tracks have been melting this week. Uh, so I didn't get home till half past 12 last night. Really? Oh, it was terrible. I left. I did go to the pub after the press day. <laughs> uh, however, I did try and catch the nine o'clock train and it kind of just descended into farce from there. So, yeah, yeah uh, bad week for transport. It is. They don't like weather. They don't like of weather. Any kind. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's let's get away from trains before I uh, blow a gasket. Yeah, well, I guess I mean in terms of temperature, the um, IMF has called its uh, stance on um, you know the, the where it's sort of scaremongering expectations yeah. about growth. Well, um, there, were two, there were two ways you can interpret their latest forecast for uh, UK GDP, and it wasn't just UK GDP they were looking at. They were looking at, at global GDP. Yeah, they're looking at global. From a UK perspective, they're still pretty bearish. They've, they've knocked one percentage point off their expectations for GDP growth for 2017 yep. for the UK. But globally, they only um, dialed it down by 0.1 percentage point. So yeah. the comments from Christine Lagarde before the referendum vote that there would be severe regional and global damage have not transpired yet. I guess it's a bit early to say they will not transpire, but it hasn't been an immediate mass panic. It's not. There are so many things that are different to say the credit crisis now that mean that there's a lot of strength in the economy. We had the unemployment numbers out early this week. There, the unemployment numbers you can't call them that anymore. Oh, sorry, the the employment the numbers, employment numbers because whichever, whichever way you want to look at it. So very low unemployment, very high employment. Um, whichever way you want, want, want to say it. The but, positive um, way. The positive the way. Positive way. Sorry, I'm just always so sceptical <laughs> as a journalist. But yeah, yeah, there's some good there's some good UK data, and I guess um, like we're going to talk about in a minute, things like the arm deal are at least sort of uh, a positive thing for UK PLC's um, you know, appearance. Um, well, I, th- I think that that's sort of disputed, but it kind of suggests the UK is open for business, which I think yeah, is how I mean, Philip Hammond, the new Chancellor, it, it, it's, it. a, it's a rhetorical success. I kind of accept mm. that because obviously ARM is a very global company and 
yes, SoftBank has said it's going to keep um, the HQ in Cambridge, double its headcount, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But um, it is a success of uh, it's a PR success, I suppose. Yeah, in its biggest yeah. thing. And that will be good for good for the government, potentially good for morale, potentially good for business confidence. So yeah, I mean, let's, you know, let's while, we're, while we're on the subject of Brexit, I know we're not a political show, but what do you think of old Theresa doing her rounds across Europe? She's she's, she's looking good. I think, yeah, she seems stately. I think she you know, does seem stately, doesn't she? Yeah. I mean, it's this is kind of every, you know, the UK political crisis, you know, which was threatening to turn into an absolute farce. Yeah, um, it kind of seems to be behind us now. Even though Boris is getting some flack in America and everywhere, everywhere, Actually, he got, got booed in France. And yeah, got yeah. asked by American Everyone gets journalists. booed in France. <laughs> Um, but you know, I mean, you know, the, the, that political that political crisis at least seems behind us. We have, it seems, a strong prime minister. Now. Yeah, we do, and actually, it's it's made the whole um, sort of shambles really of the Labour Party to fall into the shadows. It's it's obviously very important because an awful lot of people have now registered to vote in uh, the Labour contest, so that will be very interesting. But in terms of its effect on you know the sort of feeling in the UK, I think actually the fact that the government has kind of got its house in order quite quickly enables a settling feeling among you know, markets at least yeah yeah good good for markets yeah good for is. markets not so good for the Labour Party at the moment which, no. uh, and he got absolutely I mean Jeremy Corbyn bless him he got absolutely destroyed in uh, yeah Theresa May's <laughs> first BMQs I, mean, I was... think she did the verdict was that she did very well and um, certainly picked a few of his weaknesses up. So Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we digress. So the world isn't ending, which they kind of implied it would before the referendum, which is kind of good. UK is a little bit weaker going forward, than, but, but that comes as no surprise, really. Exactly. I, I, mean, guess, I guess a lot of that's related to property, which is the subject of our cover feature. Yep. Uh, having said that, just before we came in here, I noticed the, the CML's latest release, Mortgage Landing Soars in June. So, yeah. I mean, you know what's going on exactly so Wait, what's, what's, what's this good news about well maybe that was a bit of a rush before the referendum bearing in mind the referendum was at the but end why? of that month but, but that doesn't make sense you wouldn't well, rush to buy I'm a not, house not, not, but... i'm not saying it makes sense <laughs> what i'm saying is maybe it just it was a factor in people's decisions whether it's sensical or not is a different question but... I, I, you know i think there's a lot of bizarre speculation going on at the moment i don't think we are in business as usual mode but i certainly don't think things are as bad as as had been suggested they might be. And I think the IMF's figures kind of back that up. And Capital Economics, who I like, albeit it's run by uh, a, you know, a very much a Eurosceptic, I mean, they, they suggested that, you know, it just proved that the IMF was bluffing all along. And I, and I guess that, you know, these, these economic bluffs were what actually, you know, almost put a lot of people off voting to remain. They felt they were being threatened. And uh... Yeah, I guess as um, well, as Michael Gove, wasn't it, who said that people are getting bored of the experts and maybe that was the... Uh... Maybe that was the thing. Yeah, well, you know, experts aren't so bad. We've got a few on our team. We do. There you go. There you go. Anyway, enough about that. We talk about the global economy. China, I noticed you mentioned this week, you know, there, was some, there were concerns around China and the prospects for its economy, but they look, they're looking all right. Well, yeah, the, the numbers, are, so Standard & Poor's has upgraded its um, sort of forecasts marginally for China's GDP growth, but it actually sees that as a bad thing because... Now it, I'm confused. Yeah, well, it, the reason being is it's quite a sensible one because they, they thought that the authorities were very much there trying to um, balance the economy, slow growth down a bit because it had been so credit fueled that they wanted to see the authorities kind of dial things down just a little bit. But their view is that actually now they think the economy is going to grow further. What it probably means is that the government is not sort of trying its best to curb credit growth. And so a lot of this 
extra sort of emphasis in the economy is all being fueled by borrowing, and that's potentially a worry for the longer term. So I guess they're worried that, that this will just overheat the economy, uh, absolutely, and build up to a, a perhaps a bigger crash at some point in the future. Yeah, exactly. The, the, the hard landing that I think people worry about. Yeah, the worry is that maybe it's sort of the higher up you go, the, the bigger the fall could be. So yeah, that's their worry. It sounds a bit counterintuitive. It should be good that we're seeing the world's probably like second largest economy likely to grow more. But yeah, the, the, the driver of that growth is a concern. Reading across from China's reasonable figures, you would have expected that to be good news for, say, the mining sector. But they've actually had a bit of a horrible week. Yeah, they have. Um, we've got a good tip update from Alex actually on Rio Tinto. And then also um, the miners, BHP, Billiton and Anglo-American. Um, they were yesterday, which was Wednesday, uh, two of the biggest fallers actually on the FTSE. They both kind of um, had mixed production reports, really. Um, a, a mixture of sort of doing kind of okay as to what they said and a mixture of not meeting analyst expectations. But um, yeah, the shares didn't do very well yesterday. And I guess it's interesting that it's, it's hard necessarily to sort of draw an exact sort of line between them all. But the fact they're all commodity producers, they've had a tough week, production's a bit patchy. Not quite a trend, but interesting and significant, I think, that it's all happened in one go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because, you know, it make, just makes the whole global economic outlook even harder to read. Yeah, it does. Uh, you know, the miners are not doing so well. Production's not, you know, uh, where it should be. China's China's economic growth is looking better than you would expect it to. And it doesn't, the two things don't tally. No, exactly. So, I mean, maybe, maybe that shows that maybe China's economy is actually rebalancing a bit and a bit of the growth is more kind of consumer than... Than industrial, which mm. might point to why the commodity cycle isn't being pulled up so much by China. But consumers borrowing money to buy TVs and phones so they can go on a Pokemon hunt. Presumably. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Uh, one last thing on Seven Days. Um, there's an interesting story there about Stanley Gibbons, which I think we will talk about another time because it's extraordinarily complicated, but yeah, just horrible. Yeah, in a nutshell, their chief executive and finance uh, director have gone. Yeah, I mean, let's, let's come back to that another day. I think we need to get Simon on to talk about that one. It's absolutely ridiculous what's going on there. The airlines had a pretty horrible week, and you've, you've talked about whiz here. Yeah, I mean, interestingly, I, it wasn't that long ago. I think it was just last week, actually. In the last edition, I wrote a piece about airline capacity and the potential for um, airline groups to dial down the amount of um, extra seats, extra planes that they're going to bring to the UK market, given what's going on at the moment across the world. I mean, you've got terrorism-related incidents, you've got strikes in France, you've got delays at Gatwick due to problems with the runway there. You've got more expensive oil as well. Which you've got oil. Really become, I mean, them. It does, yeah. I mean, most of them are very well hedged, but yes, it does start to affect them to a degree. They're not sort of unimpacted. Well, you're never perfectly hedged. Of course, of course. And with Wizz Air, they were quite aggressive, actually. They said in their, their update this week that they're going to halve the, um, their expected capacity growth for the second half in the UK. Oh, Sage Bradley. Yeah. So yeah. they're going to do that. It seems sensible. I mean, I don't think the shares were massively hit by it because Wizz is quite well placed with the Central and Eastern European market. And they're, they're very quickly able to you know, redirect their planes to other routes where... Mm. Um, the pricing of the tickets isn't being affected by big currency falls like it is in the UK, where demand isn't as patchy compared to the UK. Yeah. I mean, is, is this just a normal cycle in terms of the airlines? I think so. I mean, I guess with talking about the, the low oil price, what that has done is bring about a lot of um, capacity onto the airline network. And EasyJet actually pointed to this in their um, update this morning. Um, and that, that update was not taken very well. The shares are down about 6% before I came down to the podcast. Well, they have blamed Brexit. 
they've partially blamed Brexit, but there are other sort of tangible reasons as well. Like I just said, like the things like Gatwick uh, Air, Air, and runway problems, which are causing oh, this delays is the and disruptions. Hole, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> are they still not fixed that? No. <laughs> Um, French airstrikes. I mean, uh, French airspace accounts for 65% of EasyJet's capacity. So that's a big problem for them. Mm -hmm. There are problems affecting EasyJet, but they are problems that will be affecting everybody. So we're still remaining sort of upbeat on EasyJet. We think the fact that they not long ago moved up the dividend payment to 50% of operating profits is a good thing. Carolyn McCall was on the radio this morning saying that's safe, no worries about that. Um, so we think that sort of regularity of income from an airline is quite rare. And so we're kind of sticking by EasyJet, but it's not having an easy time. No, no. But, you know, price falls to then represent perhaps a, a buying opportunity. Yeah, exactly. And we think, you know, EasyJet is so well established that you know it, it is going to be around for the foreseeable future. It's doing very well in the business sector, which it talks about in its update today. Um, that was a big part of Carolyn McCall's strategy. Yeah, so it was. To shift that emphasis from, you know, cheapest chips, consumer flights to... To, to, to more kind of upmarket business trends. Exactly. And it's doing that quite well. And I guess to come back to how, where we started, because of the whole oil price thing, if oil does keep rising, then what it should do is push out some of this capacity that is able to come on stream because of the low oil price. So as, as oil you know, creaks up in price, if it does, then more established players are likely to last longer and do do better mm. than the sort of the flood of the market that's been encouraged by cheap oil. Yeah. I mean, the the the, uh, the kind of uncertain uh, security situation in Europe cannot be helping, and, and it's certainly not. I mean, Lufthansa uh, was another major airline to warn this week, and, and and warned quite specifically that a lot of this its problems were stemming from people not wanting to travel because they're worried about what's going to happen where they go. Exactly, and also it creates a problem because what happens is that you have. Um all airlines redirecting their traffic so and that pushes prices down in the and sort of yields down for the airlines to say the mediterranean and the canaries and the likes because that's where everyone is flying to well i'll tell you what we haven't mentioned which was one of the most absurd things i've ever seen and it was seemingly over in the blink of an eye uh i think friday evening i noticed this and by monday it was kind of over it was turkey i what yeah, the hell? I know. <laughs> so not many people are going to want to travel to Turkey on holiday. Well, they, but they are. I mean, Turkey's an enormously popular destination. I speak to a lot of people. You know, where, are you going, where are you going on holiday? Turkey. Yeah, but have you spoken to them since the weekend? I think they might even be there. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hope uh, they're okay. Yeah, but I mean, it's just, it's just mad. So, so presumably, you know, all those Brits that were travelling to Turkey, they're, they're going to want to go somewhere else. So. Yeah, Turkey, Egypt, North Africa, yeah, they're all going to be sort of changing their plans. Good Lord, everyone's going to be going to Skegness at this rate. They might well be. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe Canvey Island will be uh, rejuvenated. It doesn't feel like good news for the travel industry, any of this stuff. It's 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 terrifying. It's a tough, tough tough time. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, usually I'm a positive guy, you know, as you well know. (laughs) Why are you shaking your head? (laughs) (laughs) I often think when industries are under pressure, when share prices are falling look at this as a buying opportunity, but I look at travel and I just think, oh my God, there is so much uncertainty out there that uh, I'm finding it hard to see something positive at the end of the tunnel here. Yeah, as I said, I'm staying positive on EasyJet, but I think we do have um, a buy tip on Thomas Cook and that's kind of looking, you know, harder and harder to justify Mm. really. It it was on a very low price when we tipped it and we thought from here, surely, you know, it might stay flat for a while, but then go up. But with everything that's happening, it's making that sort of business, um, you know, sort of very, very, it's putting it under a lot of pressure. 
And additionally, you're seeing the likes of um, things like on the beach and that sort of thing, more internet driven, um, very specific beach holiday focused things kind of nipping at their heels. And well, we actually had one of, the, I don't know if you picked this up, I'm sure you did, uh, but you know, there was one of the locals travel operators went bust this week as well, which mm. you know, you, you start seeing that thing, people get, then get nervous about booking because they're worried about And I don't think that one, I think, was offshore, so it wasn't ab to protect it, no one yeah. got their money back. It's. Now, we had that during the credit crunch, yeah. you know, when a number of airlines went bust, including uh, producer Dom. You'll be pleased to hear West Ham's sponsor. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the, you know, trouble, troubling times for the travel industry, I would say. And it's difficult to see if it's going to get any better, really, because obviously, you know, terrorism is an unknown quantity. Yeah. Okay. That's enough of that gloom. We don't, we don't want gloom on this podcast. Let's turn to technology, Theron, because, you know, as much as... I find my mind boggled by Pokemon Go. And we'll come on to ARM after this because I think it's really interesting too. They're kind of related in a way with the whole smartphone boom. You know, and Pokemon Go is really, it's kind of the first thing that we've seen that really takes advantage of the attributes of a smartphone in terms of a gaming environment. To, and it's just it's just a phenomenon. One of the interesting things is that uh, Nintendo was uh, was criticised for several years for not jumping on the smartphone train. Now it's just got on a different train completely and set a new standard for yeah. mobile games. So now it's all about augmented reality and seeing virtual things in the in the real world. Yeah, I mean it's, it's incredible. It's the way I'd understood augmented reality. That it was you'd have a map and it would be showing you where shops were, and you know, but you know that's never really t- happened in, in in any meaningful way. But but actually hunting for fantasy creatures in you know your, your your local park seems to have captured the, the public imagination in, 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 in an insane way yeah it really has i mean they're doing a huge global rollout it's about to launch in japan the home of pokemon so there's there are over 30 so it's not million, even launched in japan yet. no oh there are only over 30 million downloads already and it's turning over millions of dollars a day already. So yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a big deal. And there are lots of other sort of companies. Where I'm actually working on a blog right now about comp- other companies that can benefit. So GameStop, which is the equivalent of Game Digital in the UK, their CEO was on CNBC earlier this week saying that sales have doubled in some stores of just Pokemon merchandise selling very well and all the games. And there's this huge hype factor. And the other side of it is... Um, a deal between Pokemon Go and McDonald's, which is across 3,000 stores in Japan. So Japan will be, uh, their outlets will be marked as places where players will want to go in the game. Wow. And, and you know, people are using online maps and there's lots of you know, companies getting into these ecosystems. Apple, I think we, we talked about earlier, has, has a big stake in this. Uh, yeah, so because the game is downloaded from their stores and players buy these items inside the game through their store, Apple and Google both take about a 30% cut of every sale in the game. And uh, Bango, which is a small mobile payments company, it allows um, smartphone users to charge purchases directly to their carrier. So Bango, Bango's listed in the UK? Uh, Bango's UK listed, yeah. yeah. So that's also benefited what, a lot. What's their share price then? Uh, Gone through the roof, about, I'd imagine. Uh, 15%. That's 15? <laughs> is that all? Excellent. Yeah, compared oh, to Nintendo it. doubling in a, two weeks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Nintendo, I mean, it's a business that there have been question marks over for, for many years. I mean, the Wii, uh, which I have, I have two of them, in fact, was a phenomenon. <laughs> was a phenomenon. But everything they've done since has kind of left people uh, somewhat cold. And I think everyone was wondering where this this company was going. And, well, this is where it was going. But it's not not even Nintendo that's actually developed this, is it? This is the funny thing. So this is kind of the angle of our new spotlight this week is that investors put Nintendo share price through the roof more than double when, in fact, it owns uh, only about 30% of the Pokemon company and an undisclosed stake in Niantic. And those are the two which actually made the game. So the company you mentioned... Uh, second there, Niantic. 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 It's a spin-off of Google that specializes in 
uh, Google Maps and augmented reality. Is, so, it, uh, is it owned by Google? Or? Um, no, it was spun off last year and it got investment from, it's, it's relatively complex, but from the Pokemon company from Nintendo and Google all invested in it. Right, so Google does have some kind of equity investment in this business. It does, yeah. Okay, so, so there is a benefit to Google as well, which I think is a company you yourself like and have tips in. The uh, yes. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, it's absolutely amazing. I, I've even myself been onto uh, some of the uh, Pokemon maps to make sure there are none hiding in my front garden. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the, the craziest thing I saw before we came down here was a video on Channel 4 News about um, a guy in America who was driving and he crashed into a police car because he was playing Pokemon Go while he was driving. Surely there were no Pokemon on roads. Well, well, maybe there was one on this police car because I drove into it. I don't know, but it's just um, I, I'm a bit like you. I find it a bit baffling that this is so popular. But yeah, I don't know. I, I guess. And what was interesting about Theron's point is that it's really important that if you are going to sort of jump on the back of one of these trends, that you really understand kind of who's involved in that. Yeah, where, doing where, it. where the profits are coming from? Yeah, who's exactly. actually making the money? Uh, I think that's really key. And it's, a, it's a great point in Theron's piece that rather than getting too kind of carried away with the hype, I mean, yes, if you bought Nintendo straight away, you've probably done quite well. Not necessarily bad. Thing. But yeah, do a bit more delving. How much of the the profit created from this absolutely enormous craze that's happened in the past couple of weeks? You know, how much of that is going to the bottom line of the sh- the stock mm. you're buying to take advantage of? And yeah. look at if it's sustainable as well, because it could just be a flash in the pan. It could be gone in a month. Yeah, well, that's that's I guess the thing about this internet age in which we live that uh, these these viral phenomenon yeah do do have the the potential to die out quite quickly. I've not actually seen anyone hunting for a Pokemon. No one on my walk to work. I see half a dozen people every day. Really playing this game. Have you seen anyone, Dom? Yeah, all the time, <laughs> everywhere. Maybe, maybe it's because I live out in the sticks. <laughs> People are always looking at their phones now, though, so it's maybe a bit difficult to know what exactly they are doing. Well, if they're swiping up, that means they're uh, okay. <laughs> Is that the I found the yeah. Pokemon move? That's the throwing the Pokeball motion. <laughs> throwing the what? <laughs> the Pokeball, I think he said. <laughs> Which I thought was something else, but <laughs> yeah, that's my my wife said. Uh, at least it gets them out of the house. My my girls spend their entire lives sitting on their phones if we let them, and uh, at least. There's some exercise involved in this exercise. So yeah, Pokemon, blimey, who'd have thought it? Who'd have thought it? That's um, that's that's something I never expected to hear again. Anyway, let's talk about Arm because this is a company I I admire. It essentially powers ninety percent, is it, Theron, of the yeah. world's smartphones, and it's been essentially it hasn't been bought yet, but uh, an offer for the company has been accepted by the management of Arm, twenty-four billion pounds. Yeah. From Japan SoftBank, which is a kind of tech conglomerate. Yeah. So, so talk us through the mechanics of the deal. Well, I guess one of the most interesting aspects for me is uh, I do the M&A page, and mostly when these deals, when it becomes recommended, already 50% of the shares have been put forward in, in favor of the deal. And in this case, um, Arms Board and SoftBank together own less than 2% of the company. So this is really a, a deal open to shareholders. It also happened really quickly, was one thing I, I noticed, because we often hear... But an informal approach has been made and blah, 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 and it drags on and several weeks later, something formal might materialise and it drags on. But this is happening really quickly. Yeah, so was, in a fortnight, apparently, the negotiations were done and a lot of analysts have said it, it might be uh, Brexit and the yen versus the pound and several factors could have gone we do, into we it. Don't, we don't necessarily believe that, though, do we? Well, we're sort of more interested in the fundamental case for the company and that arm was always a, a really high-value asset that could be sold at the right price. Yes, I mean, the pound has weakened by around 8%. I don't know what it's weakened at uh, against the yen, actually. Not- uh, there was there was a really great piece, actually, that I read that basically said that uh, there had been a lot of buying of sterling from Japan 
straight after Brexit. And people were trying to figure out who on earth in Japan was buying so much sterling. And they think now perhaps actually it might have been SoftBank wow. buying up a, a sizable amount of sterling so that even if the um, the pound did kind of regain some strength, they had they had sort of a, an arsenal of sterling at a certain but, but that's level. just clever financing. If you if you think yeah. about if you're thinking about buying a company and you know yeah, we're talking yeah millions of pounds here that you can save, but that in itself is not necessarily the reason why this happened. Arm the price it's price that SoftBank is paying is certainly not cheaper than it was pre-referendum and it's an extraordinary premium. Even uh, getting this tipped in February was a challenge with my editor to try and convince him about a 28 times forward rating and SoftBank is paying a 40% premium to the all-time high so it's a really significant deal for shareholders. Yeah so Bearball has commented on this as well this week and he he's worried I don't know if it's something you've touched on, Theron, that SoftBank is not necessarily as financially strong as it perhaps needs to be to acquire something like Arm, which is not going to make a meaningful impact to the bottom line. Uh, it's going to you know, see its debt pile increase. He speculates that uh, there might be some other bidders in the wings, potentially. The analysts definitely considered that, but part of the um, benefit of SoftBank is that having a Japanese owner isn't going to bother anyone, whereas if Intel bought it, Apple might have some issues there. Could, there could be conflicts of interest with ARM's key customers. So part of it's political, that get, there's a Japanese advantage there. And SoftBank has, has a, a good history of taking over these companies and doing well with them, generally. Well, the, the guy the guy that runs it... Uh, Masayoshi Song. Masayoshi Song, thank you uh, for, for helping me out of a terrible pronunciation problem. I, as you well know, podcast listeners, I have a terrible track record of pronunciation. But yeah, so he is a very, he's an entrepreneur. He has a very entrepreneurial streak. And this, you know, Arm is an entrepreneurial company. And it, that, in that respect, it's a good fit. Yeah, and it's uh, it's really a play on the internet of things and this idea that everything in our lives is going to be connected to the internet. And SoftBank, it owns Sprint, one of the carriers in the US, so it already has big exposure to telecom. So the idea is this fits well with its idea of being in every phone and being in every device connected. The Internet of Things. Before it became known as the Internet of Things, you know, it's like the connected fridge, but it's gone way beyond that now. What, what do we mean by the Internet of Things? Well, we are... mean smart cities, we mean lampposts, which will know when to turn off based on the time or what's travelling next to them. Well, they turn we're off anyway, don't drones. they, lampposts? We're talking about our home appliances, yeah. smart homes, so the uh, uh, heating, thermostat, heating, that sort of that's, thing. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay, wow, okay. Cars, yeah. of course. Yeah, cars. I mean, we, actually, my, my wife has a, a nice car, which uh, is a little bit more connected than my 10-year-old car. Uh, I thought you were going to say like a driverless car then. <laughs> not yet, not yet. Uh, but that, that's, I guess that's part of this as well. Yeah. And in fact, I, I read a piece where it was speculated that one of the reasons, in fact, I think it was SoftBank itself that said the rise of artificial intelligence uh, is something that is very much looking at and sees ARM as an enabler of that. Yeah, so one of the uh, key points in ARM's recent results has been that there's a growing am- amount of component, electronic components in everything in the world, and that just means their market's exploding. Mm. And, but Japan itself, going to go back to the AI point, you know, Japan is, is essentially the home of robotics in, in the world. And yeah, we, ha- we had one in the office recently, didn't we? I don't know if you saw the <laughs> yeah. little robot wandering around. day wandering around the canteen and waving at people and yeah. mostly understanding what was being said to it. Yeah, if you, I, I saw a couple of videos. I wasn't so convinced by them. Well, that's, <laughs> why, that's why I said mostly. <laughs> I was being diplomatic. But, but no, I mean, Japan, it's a big thing there. You know, robotics. and So, so you know, it's, it, it's a good place for ARM to be. 
Yeah, and definitely. And in terms of, I guess, SoftBank's rationale for buying it is that it has this unique, very lucrative business model where it designs these microchips and sells those designs to Apple and Samsung, then charges a royalty every time they use one of its designs in their devices. Mm. So it's, it's very high margin and it's it doesn't have to be particularly loyal to one customer. It's just selling designs. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, let's talk about the effects on the UK. So, you know, some people were saying, well, this is wonderful. It, it suggests that the UK is open for business. Uh, SoftBank has said that it's going to double the workforce uh, up in Cambridge, where Arm is based. Uh, fantastic news. Um, others have suggested that, you know, it's, it's just us selling off our, um, you know, crown jewels and there'll be nothing left of industry for us to, to actually build any sort of credible national strategy around. I mean, you know, do you have any views on that? I, I do, but uh, what do well, you think? Well, I, I think uh, as a writer, it'll be a bit of a shame that I might not be able to write about ARM as often as before. But it's still here. Yeah, but it, it, it will be part of SoftBank. So yeah, but it's still here yeah. in the UK. And I mean, you know, the way I see companies like ARM is they, they essentially form the fulcrum of, of like uh, ecosystems. So Cambridge will still have, I suspect, a very strong hub of, of technology companies. And it would seem strange. Though. I mean, obviously, you, you, at the moment, you have to take SoftBank at its word, but you would presume that if um, the company has been so successful um, from its you know, genesis in Cambridge that they would want to keep it there because it's sort of whole support system. It's the way it thinks, exactly. the way it's supported, the way it maybe recruits people even might be well fundamental to how it's succeeded so far. So disrupting those what seem like small things, a location of a company, can actually probably be maybe more dangerous than you realise. And I think maybe the the SoftBank owner will probably, it's been, this will be replayed back to me, but will probably keep his words, I reckon, and will keep you know, keep arm in in the UK. Indeed, indeed. It's not like a factory. So I remember, as I say in my editorial, when Cadbury was bought by Kraft, Irene Rosenfeld, the chief executive, made a promise that a certain factory down in Keensham in the West Country would would stay uh, open. And that promise was quickly reneged upon. And I think people are looking at that and saying, well, you know, SoftBank are going to do the same. But but it's a different type of thing. It's not making, a, it's not making chocolate on a production line. This, it's, uh, the worst thing is the cream eggs, which they stopped using Cadbury's chocolate and started using Kraft chocolate. I, I've never been a fan of them, so, uh, but I'll take your word. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think it's a fascinating story. And I, I think, you know, it, I think it's quite exciting, actually. And, you know, if it means that Arm is enabled to become an even bigger player in the world tech stage and it remains based in Cambridge, I think that's really quite exciting. And I think we'll see innovation come from it, like we do from Google, for example. You talk about Niantic coming out of Google, I think the same thing is, is, is true of businesses like, like Arm. And mm. I think that the fact that it's here, I think, I think it's exciting. And also Google has quite, you know, not, I don't know how big, but, you know, there is a, there's a sort of physical presence of Google in the UK. They have offices here, you know, they're employing yeah. people. So in a way, the fact that Arm is such an attractive target. You know, maybe there will be other UK businesses that are attractive, and it doesn't mean that the whole thing is going to up and leave from the UK. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because something uh, Theron and I were chatting about before we came in here was this idea that you know, with Arm gone, there's nothing left of UK technology. But you know, one that's not true because there's yeah, you know, there are private companies uh, that we don't necessarily write about the IC, but they they remain here, and Arm will be one of them. Will be owned uh, as a subsidiary of a large Japanese company, but there are a number of really quite fascinating UK tech companies that are still doing really well, one of which uh, you've written about this week, they're on Microfocus. Yeah, so Microfocus specialises in modernising companies' ageing servers and computers. Uh, it's a software business, and we're big fans of it because it pay- pays these very generous cash returns. Mm. And it recently made a huge acquisition that 
put those cash returns on the back burner, but we think that we expect them to come back next year and analysts do too. Yeah, it's an, it's an amazing business. We've tracked it for a long time. We've had it on a buy for quite a long time. But yeah, it's global. As you say, it's acquisitive. So it's buying up other big, you know, global tech. These are not UK companies that it's buying. No, it was, it was a US company. A US company. So, you know, we, we have our, our acquirers going off, hunting the world, scouring the world for, uh, for interesting targets. We've got Sage as well. Yeah. And Laird, Spirant, a few other ones as well. But I mean, Sage is massive. Sage is massive. <laughs> Sage is. Uh, and it's essentially, you know, it powers the world's uh, accountancy. Uh, practices and you know it's, it's a huge business but very acquisitive over the years so I, you know again I, I just this idea that that UK tech dies with arm I think is, is absolutely rubbish I agree <laughs> <laughs> good okay right well thank you Theron thank you Bradley we haven't even discussed the cover feature this week it's about house builders and uh, commercial property commercial property angle uh, Jonas discussed on the sector focus video which I would encourage you to go and watch and the house builders we have discussed it a lot uh, on this podcast and in the magazine and what Jonas has done in this great feature is put a lot of meat on the bone of why why we're not as nervous about the, the house building industry as, as some are. Uh, there have been some share price falls. We have seen some, some recovery there. It's definitely worth a read. If you are interested in the house building sector, like, like Microfocus, big cash returns to come from there as well. These are businesses that are in good shape, certainly when you compare them to where they were uh, in 2007-8 when, when we had our proper financial crisis uh, and they were uh, heavily indebted and their markets dried up. Anyway, we've got a few results in this week. Yeah, it's getting much busier this next week. week. But in, the, in this edition, it's a bit sparse. But a bit sparse. Next week's looking... Next week's looking punchy. It's looking good, isn't it? It is. And the week after that, I suspect it's going to be even worse. I think from now on, for the next six weeks, you'll just hear us complaining about how busy it is. Yeah, yeah. Some, summer's over for us. Yeah, exactly. At least we've got a couple of days of summer before, we did. Uh, before our lives basically ended for the next month. <laughs> yeah, so what else have we got in the magazine? Uh, lots of personal finance content. Personal, our model portfolios that we run, uh, ETF portfolios, have done uh, really well after Brexit. They're, they're income focused, uh, but I'm sure that uh, Leonora and Kate will be discussing them uh, on their podcast tomorrow. Actually, James Norrington has, has uh, built another uh, model portfolio using his uh, principles of tactical asset allocation. Uh, this one's really designed to, to help you ride out volatility in, th- in times of uh, market stress like we have seen with Brexit. All the usual comments, uh, all the usual news, most of which we've discussed, uh, some of which we haven't. We haven't even touched BT. BT, uh, Poundland as well. Poundland, as an, as an activist yeah. trying to buy up some shares in spite of there being an agreed deal with Steinhoff. So yeah, read about that in the news oh, section as well. Activists, what can you do? How dare they? Indeed. Uh, lots of interesting developments in the price comparison uh, industry, which Ian discussed in his column. And we have a chart there as well. Anyway, Wonderful. Thank you, Theron. Thank you, Bradley. Thank you, Dom, over in the control room. And we will be back again next week. In the meantime, go and pick up the magazine Resilient Real Estate, £4.70, all good news agents, or alternatively, subscribe. Thank you very much. See you soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.